This program is a paid commercial announcement and in no way represents the views of WPHT or its management. Hi, everybody. Welcome to another edition of Recovery Radio. My name is Steve Martorano. We're here on Saturdays at this time, every Saturday, talking about the disease of addiction and the road to recovery. Recovery Radio is sponsored, of course, by Retreat, Premier Addiction Treatment Centers, and we'll have more about them straight ahead. We are uh, smack dab in the, uh, well, not the middle, but the beginnings of a holiday season, which means a lot of people will be uh, going out and dining and um, having a great time in a, in a bar or restaurant of your choice. And of all the industries impacted by the current uh, drug crisis in this country, I, I would be, I mean, while, uh, you know, this disease of substance abuse is an equal opportunity destroyer, I'd be hard-pressed to find one more impacted by uh, substance abuse issues than the restaurant business, for a lot of reasons that we're going to get into today. Our guest on the telephone uh, is a fellow from Lexington, Kentucky, Rob Perez. Uh, Rob is a restaurateur uh, of uh, many years, so so he, he has seen this problem uh, up close and personal uh, as a businessman running a restaurant. He and his wife, Diane, noticed about, I think, five years ago that they were losing employees. In fact, in the 10-year period they looked at, they had lost 13 employees. And by lost, I mean they died. And that's when um, they decided to do something about it. And it's a pretty extraordinary story. So we're pleased to have Rob Perez with us here on Recovery Radio. Um, Rob, welcome to the show. Hello, thank you. That's an extraordinary number. Uh, you know, thir- uh, 13 employees. Uh, it stopped you in your tracks, right? Yeah, I mean, here's the sad thing. I don't think that we're uh, unique. I think that we're probably fairly typical. Uh, and that's the sad thing. I'm not sure if the restaurant industry um, attracts uh folks that are in active addiction or uh, people in active addiction are attracted to it, but it happens. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, yes, it, 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 it does happen. And the, that chicken before, you know, before the egg thing will, ne- will never solve. But let's talk a little bit about some of the factors that might contribute or um, harm somebody who had a substance abuse problem, things that go on routinely in a restaurant and a kitchen. Yes. Yeah, you know, I think that uh, the reason behind it is manyfold, but uh, the environment is staffed by usually half college students and half service professionals. The service professionals are looking for an environment. They love the restaurant industry, but they like an environment that maybe isn't early morning. They like an environment that's cash-based in a lot of ways, and they like the atmosphere that's fun, lively, and carefree with the college students. The college students love it because it's flexible. You could always get out of a shift when you have a big exam. Someone is there to pick it up, and you have cash money. Mm -hmm. Um, And it is a fun environment. People are there to have fun. It's an enjoyable at-work experience if it's not a crazy night. And it's also fun after work. The energy level is high. 
Um, and and you're right. It, it, it is a, it is a, a party a party atmosphere, and the work is very difficult. The, the, the demands and the pressures can can be tough. So, Rob, give us a little uh, idea of you and your wife's background in the restaurant business. Uh, your uh, your main your main store is uh, the uh, Soul Good Restaurant and Pub. Is that the name of that? Yeah, we have three restaurants other than Deviate here in Lexington, Kentucky, and they're each the same concept. It's called Saul Good Restaurant and Pub. Um, you know, uh, my wife and I grew up in California, and we actually met on my first day uh, starting the restaurant business, not just a new job, but I was a farm kid, assumed I probably was going to be a farmer for the rest of my life, and just decided that that wasn't for me, so I got... Um, you know, an interview and got hired at a restaurant that happened to have a, a, a really wonderful 18-year-old hostess <laughs> that I met on my very first day in a restaurant. And that that person has been my wife for over 30 years. Nothing like 18-year-old hostess, right? Right, Rob? Yeah. <laughs> can I assume from the name? Yeah. Of, can I assume from the name of your restaurant, Soul Good Re- a Restaurant and Pub, that you, that you guys are Breaking Bad fans? <laughs> Well, this is way before Breaking Bad came out, so uh, we'd like to say they they got our name. That is a co- that is an amazing coincidence. So, yeah, you, so you yeah, get into yeah. the restaurant you get into the restaurant business as a young guy, and, uh, and did you work your way up through the ranks and learn it all? Yeah, I uh, started off at a steak, seafood, and wine restaurant in California, and the president of that company got recruited to become. Um, the director of operations for Hard Rock Cafe. Mm-hmm. At the time, there was only six restaurants in the nation, or in the world, I'm sorry, and uh, he asked if I would come along and help uh, grow uh, the business, uh, and I went to work in Dallas, Texas, and I spent the next 10 years half in operations and half in development uh, at the Hard Rock Cafe, and then, um, funny enough, the the CEO of the Hard Rock, who came from the Walt Disney Company, uh, was going back after three years at at Hard Rock back to the Disney Company and asked if I wouldn't go back and help him uh, start a brand new division at the Walt Disney Company. And I went there and spent seven years and uh, moved on from there and went to New Orleans for a year and a half, then to, to Lexington, Kentucky. And now we are doing restaurants on our own. During that uh, period of time when you were uh, working in the corporate world in the uh, restaurant business, Hard Rock Cafes, what, what a perfect uh, laboratory for substance abuse. Did you see a lot of it um, and take it for granted during that period of time? Well, when I first got there, I did see a lot of it, and I didn't uh, – I, I, it's part of the rock and roll culture, let's just be honest. Mm-hmm. And I was actually shocked by it at the very beginning but it's amazing when you have an addiction how much you embrace it in a very short period of time and it became completely normal to me and I didn't even realize how nuts it really was until I reflect back on it having a little bit of age and sobriety mm-hmm. on me so yeah it was it's it was a shocking environment to be honest well uh, one of the things that the hallmark of this of this uh, people who abuse uh, substances that they uh put themselves in the, in the kind of context that 
as you say, normalizes their behavior. And again, if anybody's ever seen a kitchen going full tilt or a restaurant going full tilt at uh, dinner time, you you can see how ordinary uh, you 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 could make substance abuse in in that environment. Well, it's super high stress, and uh, when someone wants their food, they want it exactly right. They want it on time. They want it hot. And they want it specialized generally for them. And there has to be a lot of communication, a lot of specs. Uh, there's so many variations uh, with every single dish. And it's so pressure-packed that the interesting, I think, thing that happens is there's so many unique and bonding opportunities in that high pressure. It's unbelievable. The people that work together in a restaurant are so tight. They know each other so deeply. There's trust built. There's just an amazing camaraderie between the people that work in a restaurant. Which is interesting. We'll get into it a little later because that sense of community turns out to be a critical component when in treatment as well or in recovery. Um, So given all that, Rob, um, you understand the game. You understand what's going on in there. Uh, when you open your own place and you start losing employees to uh, drug overdoses, um, what in the world conspired to make you think, I'm going to reach out to that community and see if I can help them in the context of what we do? Uh, I mean, I know people in the restaurant business who would think you were insane. Well, funny enough, I thought that. The, the reason we started looking into this was contrary to my intuition and, but it was my wife's idea and that she brought to me and says, hey, look, we have been blessed and we should go out there and use what looks like uh, a problem for folks in addiction, and that's restaurants, use what's uh, a restaurant to try to help instead of hurt. And so she says, look, you, you're, an, you're an alcoholic addict, you... Uh, we've lost all these folks, you know, we should do something. And I said, no, I didn't think that this would be a good idea because the workforce and second, second chance employment with, for folks that are even in recovery, it just didn't look like an employable workforce. I had all the same stigmas that someone that hadn't experienced uh, substance use disorder. And I had the stereotypes that this workforce was going to be always late, unmotivated, generally not going to stick around for long. And how can you run a business that's pennies on the dollar profit, like a restaurant is? How can you, how can you even sustain if it's a social enterprise? So I had to be convinced of it. My wife was really diligent in trying to convince me to do it. Well, well, it's remarkable. She's remarkable for having having the thought. You're remarkable for paying attention to her. The results have been a success with the creation of uh, uh, Rob and Diane Perez's Deviate Restaurant, which is uh, uh, staffed and run by people in active recovery. Is everybody on in, in, uh, on the staff in recovery? Everyone. Yeah, so we did a bunch of studying, and there was two social enterprises we looked at a lot, and that was Homeboy Industries that's in uh, Southern California, 
and Dave's Killer Bread, which is outside of Portland, Oregon, and they were fabulous with helping us kind of conceive and I, you know, the ideas behind this. But one of the things that Dave's Killer Bread did was they they concentrate on an incarcerated, formerly incarcerated population, mm-hmm. and they said, you know, you probably should just think about starting with a third of your population uh, in active recovery, um, you know, just to make sure. And they stayed there. The funny thing is, is we started off with a third of folks that are in active recovery, and now 23 out of total 26 employees are in active recovery. We found it easier and more successful to have more people as opposed to less. Remarkable story of second chances done well. Rob Perez, our guest on Recovery Radio. We have um, more tales from the kitchen from Rob Perez straight ahead. This is Recovery Radio. Don't go away. Welcome back to Recovery Radio. Steve Martirano with you. Uh, our guest on the telephone from Lexington, Kentucky, is restaurateur Rob Perez. Rob and his wife Diane run a couple of restaurants in that area, the Saul Good Restaurant and Pub, and they also are the creators of a place called Deviate Restaurant. It is uh, completely staffed and run by people in active recovery. A remarkable achievement in any context, but in the restaurant business, uh, even more uh, impressive. So, so Rob, uh, we sort of uh, want to back up a little bit on on your personal story. You, you are twenty eight years now uh, in uh, sober, correct? Yes, sir. Tell, tell us uh, where you grew up and the circumstances of uh, of your substance abuse problems. Yeah, I grew up in the Central Valley of California. It's a uh, it predominantly an agricultural community. I grew up in a small town, and I was an only child and a product of uh, divorced parents. And, uh, you know, we we weren't rich by any means, but, you know, we had a roof over our head and everything was fine. Um, You know, as a childhood goes, I think I was fine. Uh, I wish my parents had a little bit more time for me, and uh, I love them to death. But being an only child was lonely. And uh, I think that part of my addiction issue had to do with the fact that I grew up to hate being alone. And uh, so it, it, it was just interesting. But I think that if, if I had a key thing, I'd, I'd have to say that was important in my development, for sure. How, how did it begin for you, the way, the way it begins for all young people with, with uh, your garden variety beer and marijuana experiments yeah yeah exactly it uh you know i didn't i probably started a little bit later than some but uh the end of my freshman year is when of high school is when i started drinking and by the time i was a junior in high school i think we were probably drinking five or six nights a week so yeah that's how it started was there any history of um addiction in your family in your background both my paternal and maternal uh, grandfathers had an addiction issue, yes. Were you aware of that growing up, or is it something the family didn't talk much about? You know, I I knew that my uh, paternal grandfather was uh, had a, a, a serious alcohol problem because I knew that I could never drive with him, hmm. and so fairly early, I, I kind of recognized that that was an issue. Uh, my my folks were very adamant about me not being really alone with him or uh, driving with him. Mm-hmm. My paternal grandfather 
or my, I'm sorry, my, my maternal grandfather, I did not know until I was, I was probably a teenager and it wasn't spoken about. And, um, and I wish it would have, sure. to be honest. Yeah. Because while, while you're, I, I ask this question to a lot of people, not so much to chase down a, a genetic component or anything, but to I almost always get the same answer. In spite of that family history and your knowledge of it, you never thought, well, this is something that could happen to me, right? I never even thought of it. And I, you know, it's funny looking back, uh, there was all the signs, but I was clueless to it. You know, speaking of normalizing everything, I just thought it was normal. Um, and, and it wasn't. And, then, uh, and, and I wish the dialogue... I'm happy to say that my dialogue with my children is much more open and much more, you know, real about it. Because I think my kids who are carrying uh, the gene that I have and uh, are living a life where I have to correct my parenting to adjust for being, you know, codependent sometimes and overbearing sometimes as, you know, addicts and it can be. So, I, you know, I'm hopeful that they understand that I'm breaking the cycle. I pray, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, Rob Perez is our guest restaurateur. Um, Rob, how many years were you in active uh, substance abuse and going hard? How many years did that take? Yeah, until uh, right after my 26th birthday. Um, and And I was the kind of guy that didn't have to drink every single day. But when I did drink, I didn't stop, and I was a binge drinker, and and it and it kind of followed suit. I was the last one to leave every party. What uh, did you progress to anything harder than alcohol, or was alcohol your your substance of choice? I tried everything except for opiates. Okay. So yeah. All right. So and you and you go hard, and you clearly when when did you when did you come to the realization that that you were not just a heavy drinker, that you were you in fact had a problem with alcohol. How old were you, and and what did you do about it? Well, uh, you know, like most folks with an addiction, they try to treat it with the least path of resistance. Uh, The first thing that I agreed to is my girlfriend at the time and my wife now said, there's something different about you when you drink a lot. And so I agreed to go to a therapist, a psychologist, And that was the first entry. Then uh, I had already been in trouble, uh, open container, uh, um, drunk driving before I was, you know, when I was 19. So I had gone to all the California court-ordered alcohol awareness programs, but I didn't know I was really an alcoholic yet. I just thought I was young, and this is what everybody else did because of my rational, that's how I rationalized Every college kid does this. Everybody my age. This is a rite of passage. And when I'm older, I'll, I won't do this. And and when did that illusion go away? I think as time went on, I kept on getting in trouble. And I was really, really lucky that I my low wasn't as low as many people's rock bottom. Mm-hmm. And I didn't lose my job. I was close. I didn't lose my marriage. I was close. But I didn't lose any of those things, and I was able to at least recover there. Um, But it was when, I guess, I started having too many problems, 
feeling like I couldn't get out of them that I finally fessed up to my own self and said, I got to do something different because if not, I'm going to drive home another time not remembering and I'm going to kill myself or kill someone else. Somebody else. Rob Perez, our guest. We're going to pick up on Rob's story of substance abuse, alcoholism, and uh, and now his almost 30 years of sobriety. And get deeply into how he's making this idea of hiring people in recovery work in the, in the context of his uh, restaurants. This is Recovery Radio. Please don't go away. Welcome back to Recovery Radio. We will um, return to our guest, Rob Perez, straight ahead. But I want to remind you that the freight for this thing is, uh, is paid by our sponsor, Retreat Premier Addiction Treatment Centers. And here's what I tell you. I'm going to give you their phone number. And from the top of this organization to the bottom, they hope you never have to use it. Um, but in a situation where the disease of addiction has visited you, people very often don't know where to turn. Retreat has a uh, sterling reputation. They have best facilities in the country, but they're giving you the phone number as an informational tool. They'll answer your questions, whatever they are, about the disease of addiction and treatment that's available. So again, we give you the phone number for retreat and hope you don't have to use it. 855-859-8808. That's 855-859-8808. Retreat Premier Addiction Treatment Centers. A New York Times article that uh, caught our attention uh, during the summer, July of this past summer, a remarkable story of a couple of restaurateurs in Kentucky, Rob and Diane Perez, who uh, went beyond, uh, above and beyond the call uh, in their industry or any industry and said, you know what, we've been losing way too many people to substance abuse, dying. We, we, we need to do something about this. And the result of that is something called DV8, DV8. Restaurant, which is uh, uh, Rob and Diane's creation, it is run and staffed completely by people in active recovery. Uh, Rob, I want to uh, talk about really the nuts and bolts and get into the weeds on how you guys are making that work at the restaurant. But I just want to finish up your your story of substance abuse. So you were how old when you finally got into treatment for your alcoholism? Uh, just just turned 26 years old and uh, made the decision to go uh, to an outpatient program uh, rehab and uh, really straighten it all out. So it was a pretty intensive one, right? It wasn't, you you went there for what? Uh, How many months in outpatient? Yeah, it was 90 day program. And then there was aftercare follow up and it was family oriented, family oriented. And I worked as a restaurant manager along the same time. And I was so fortunate to have Hard Rock Cafe uh, to, to work with my schedule. Can you imagine uh, allowing me to be off Monday through Friday at five o'clock in a restaurant that, you know, 90% of their business is after five o'clock. So they were incredibly supportive and they even supported me with unbelievable insurance that really helped me. I was just in the best position ever. Uh, uh, did uh, AA play any role in your uh, recovery? It was a 100% uh, AA-based program. Uh, uh-huh. And now 20, 28 years uh, sober, right? Yes, sir. Well, it's a remar- remarkable. I'm particularly interested in uh, your your outpatient uh, treatment for, for your, your alcohol alcoholism and the fact that you were continuing to work with the great support of uh, your employer. Um during that, so as you look back on that experience for you, did you pick up any 
hints or ideas that you now employ when you hire people who are in recovery? Oh, gosh, yes. Um, I mean, that was the building blocks to determine uh, what is your responsibility as a human, uh, what happens just because of the crazy universe, and defining between the two so that you could react to a staff member in the appropriate way. To be more specific, if I'm late and I haven't moved in the last six months and I come to work every day at the same time and I come to work and I'm late and I say that traffic was terrible, I know that that's a person's fault, (laughs) that they didn't give enough time. They haven't moved. Circumstances haven't changed. You should be at work on time and you should make enough time to make sure that you're on time whether or not there's a traffic jam or not. And I learned that that's when I can be more specific with people and hold people accountable. I really didn't know the difference between that and having a child wake up sick. I didn't know how to, to, to treat that back and forth, but I learned that. Sounds crazy, but I learned that in, in, in the early stages of recovery. Yeah, and uh, all of that is all of that has now come to bear as you hire people uh, to work in, in deviate who are in recovery. Do you, uh, tell us how that works. Do you do they just show up, or do you work with treatment facilities in your area who send people to you? Yeah. So what happened was is that for so long Diane was pushing this this idea, and I said no, it couldn't work. So she told me that I needed to figure out a strategy to trying to employ people that I thought couldn't be employed. So what we did is we went on a, about a year-long quest of trying to figure out how we were going to find our employees, how we were going to hold them more accountable for what, uh, you know, to stay in recovery and employed. Um, really, I, I think that the key to this whole thing is validating their, their recovery as well and then how much to expect from. So we have a full strategy a, about that. Where it led us was that we, uh, as a social enterprise, you have to pay the bills. So we excluded anybody that didn't have a stable house or at least two squares a day because we felt like we couldn't have an employment force that was either homeless or or didn't have access to to two squares a day. Mm -hmm. So then the next thing we needed to do is figure out how we could hire people that we could validate their recover their uh, recovery, and I went and visited a uh, residential living facilities here in town to try to learn more about them. I realized that each of the 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 clients that were in each of the recovery houses, the five that we visited, they had a social worker or a case manager working with them. They had a roof over their head. They had two squares. Uh, they were drug and alcohol tested each week or randomly. They had to follow rules within the confines of the house. And they were all working 12-step programs. So I went to one of the, the executive directors, Jared Thornton, at the Shepherd's House here in Lexington and said, is there any way that you can share this information, sign something, some release, 
that would keep me up to date so that I knew that people were working the program, that they were in good standing with the house. And he said, yeah, I bet our lawyers can help you figure out how to, to do a limited HIPAA document. Right, right. And, and so the idea was is to try to keep us in our own lane. I wanted to be a restaurant manager, but I'm not a therapist. And now we have five different residential living facilities that we hire from, and the accountability is gigantic with their clients and our employees because we have them sign documents that says that if they're the best uh, employee of Deviate Kitchen ever and they break the rules of the house, aren't working a program, and aren't clean, we can fire them immediately. So you don't. And so the accountability is gigantic. Yeah, you don't. You don't do. You don't drug test your employees, do you? Or do you? we don't? But through the house, but you have access to they that. Do. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Now this whole this whole process uh, resulted in the DV8 kitchen, and that's DV8 kitchen in uh, Lexington in September of last year. Uh, is that right? Um, September of seventeen. Okay, uh, and t- tell me about some of the interview sessions, the first ones that began. You you still must have had some trepidation during that process, right? Yeah, but I had to kind of let it go. Right. Um, what I asked the residential facilities to do is um, the only thing I really didn't want to hire um, was if there was a background in um, violence or a background in, in, in child issues. Mm-hmm. So they cleared that with me. And really, my, my interview is hardly anything. I trust them, uh, the, the residential living facilities, to bring people that are ready for us. So what I did is, my interview is really this. Hey, are you ready to be held accountable? Do you understand that we're going to ask you to serve food that's 20% better than your competitors, service that's 20% better than our competitors, and atmosphere? And if you're not happy with that, then you need to let me know now. But we'll figure out a way to pay you 20% more than our competitors in the same business. And we will find ways to connect with you that you wouldn't get at a normal job. If you could say yes to all those and sign the document saying that we could let you go if you aren't, you know, following the rules of your of your uh, recovery, then let's just hire you. That's I mean, okay. it, took, it takes three minutes. So we have to be we have to be clear about that. I mean, this is a kind of a twofold thing. They can be very competent as an employee of yours. But if they are not maintaining their uh, sobriety and you find out about it, they're out. Immediately, yes. It's it's a very interesting business model. Um, the, uh, the Times made the particular note of using your restaurants as a tool for rehabilitation. What does that mean? I mean, I've heard you describe how you screen people getting in, but you know, on the line in the kitchen, what's what's going on there that might be different than a, than a kitchen that wasn't staffed by people in recovery? Well, I think the most important factor at DV8 is with 23 people that are in active recovery, the staff polices themselves. Most of the time when someone is doing a good job, they're really complimented by the staff. But when they're not doing the right thing, they're also encouraged to kind of get back on track. There's also... Uh, you know, there's been instances where the staff has called each other out saying, hey, what you're doing is inappropriate. 
and the policing that's ha- that happens inside each of the departments is really wonderful. Um, but secondarily, we try to do things like give people extra chances when they just haven't been, you know, kind of explained. We have many instances where people had either a single parent or really absent parents, and we do have to teach them kind of like a mom or a dad. And and most businesses, I don't think, would do that. Um, sec- lastly, we do try to invest in people. We have weekly workshops where we bring community leaders in that talk about personal experiences, professional things, uh, kind of ongoing education. Um, And we spend a couple hours each Tuesday going through that and bonding and reflecting and hanging out. And then we do this for, you know, for our Christian values and we try to live them out. And each Sunday we offer uh, to take everybody to, to, you know, a nice family dinner at Saul Good uh, after a long Sunday day at Deviate and then take people to church and worship with them. And, and, you know, the bonds that are built in each of those things are are, are big, um, especially because I think they know that we're sincere about trying to contribute to the positive side of, uh, of the recovery. Rob, uh, Rob Perez and his wife, Diane, operate kitchens, uh, restaurants, I should say, in the uh, Lexington, Kentucky area, uh, one of which is the subject of uh, our show today, Deviate, which is staffed and run by people in recovery. We have more with Rob straight ahead. Recovery Radio. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Recovery Radio. Uh, we've been speaking with uh, Rob Perez, uh, who is the owner of a bunch of restaurants in the Lexington, Kentucky area. The one of which uh, we, we are discussing is Deviate Kitchen. It's the uh, brainchild of he and his wife, Diane, uh, who last September in 2017, uh, after seeing so many people that worked for them die of substance abuse, uh, overdoses, decided to do something about it and they have created a remarkable it's it, it, it's it's almost it's almost like an experiment that's working well called the deviate kitchen dv8 kitchen which is run and staffed completely by people in recovery uh so ron uh in the in the final couple of minutes we have here now uh with regard to the restaurant and the community for, first of all how's it doing and uh, does the is the public uh, uh, aware of who's working there? Um, it's working great. Um, you know, uh, financially, it's doing well. We think the social impacts well. We believe that our spiritual touch is is, is really strong. So, uh, and all three of the bottom lines that we look at are going well. Um, do the customers know? They absolutely know. Um, now. It works for us and it works against us, I'll be super honest. Um, You know, we didn't think we were going to have a problem getting people there in the first 18 months. But there is such a stigma amongst the general public about folks that have an addiction issue. Uh, We've never opened up a restaurant that wasn't highly successful in the honeymoon period. Unfortunately, I tell people that we had crickets and and uh, tumbleweeds in the first two months, and honestly, we only had twelve thousand dollars left in the bank uh, for cash flow, and I didn't think that we were going to make it. Um, so we had to go out there, and I think that it has to do with the stigma. We had to go out there and find out why people weren't coming in, 
and some of our best customers and some of my best friends and, and, and people I could just quiz, I had to say, are you worried because you knew that we were a second chance place? Did you know that people were probably uh, had a pass in incarceration and obviously drugs? Does that keep you from coming in? And about 90% of the folks would tell me that that wouldn't keep them from coming in. But subconsciously, by the way that they acted and how I looked in their eyes, I 100% know that that's why they didn't follow us to these restaurants, to this restaurant, when they followed us at the other three restaurants here in town. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And it's not something that they consciously recognize. Right. It was subconscious. So, but, but so, what changed? What changed? The, how do you change the, the that perception? Because the inter- the irony here is that they they're frequenting restaurants, not yours in particular, but they're frequenting restaurants, uh, not knowing what's actually going on in their kitchens. You 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 have a place where where you where you guarantee them nothing's going on in the substance abuse in the and they somehow have a prejudice against that one. What, how did you break that prejudice? Well, in an unconventional way. Um, what happened is is that uh, we didn't do anything besides go to one newspaper um, article uh, at the very beginning to kind of get the word out, and that was all we did. We didn't do any PR, no advertising, and we didn't have enough money to do advertising. So my wife says, hey, contrary to what your wishes were at the beginning, I didn't really want to do any PR. I didn't even want to talk to a radio person like you because I didn't want to look like I was stepping on uh, the misfortune of others to gain. And I didn't, you know, because we're a faith-based uh, group, I didn't want anybody to think that we weren't faith-based when sometimes I screw up, man. I'm a sinner, and I hold people more accountable than I should sometimes, and I didn't want the pressure of someone thinking, well, you're not Christian. So I didn't want to go to the press, okay? So I told my wife I never would do it after that first article. Well, she said, I better get over myself and get out there and hustle or else we're going to lose 25 people's jobs. Mm. And so she convinced me to go and rattle everybody that I could from reporters to people that write articles because we couldn't afford advertising. Yeah. We well, started getting newspaper, uh, newspaper articles and uh, TV spots, and it wasn't that that changed it. What happened is people came in. And they tried us, and they went on Yelp. It was the cinnamon. It, 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 it was the cinnamon buns, wasn't it? Excuse it, me. It was the cinnamon buns, wasn't it? Well, maybe. I mean, <laughs> the honest truth is, is that everybody wanted to contribute to this mission by using it. Once we had a five rating on Yelp. How about? And so that's the fulcrum that's the point that we really took off and started becoming successful successfully financially so a restaurateur a restaurateur with your background um was was looking around for the for the answer to how to get people to come in and try this restaurant and you forgot the oldest rule which is if they like the food they'll, they'll show up well the funny thing was is they love the food but when there's such a small sampling of population they needed an endorsement which is to your point really restaurant 101 you need an endorsement you need to know that it's going to be good before you go there absolutely and that's why all the social media you know uh things for restaurants work so well 
So let me finally ask you this. I mean, uh, is, is this sweeping the nation, people in, re- in, your, in your industry uh, hiring uh, second-chance folks in recovery? Or are they waiting to see how you guys work, make out? Yeah, I think it's a little of both. I mean, this is an interesting time. The confluences of all the things that are happening are forcing us to relook at how we hire people. And uh, the, there's a very low population of people that are interested in working in restaurants compared uh, to, to the past. Uh, I think that there's a point in time in our lives as, a, as Americans where we want to have a more meaningful life. We want to get our hands dirty a little bit, mess up our schedules a bit, not just go on a mission trip or, or give at Thanksgiving to a charity you know, people really want to be involved in trying to help someone grassroots. And I think that that's what's captivating people's imagination here, because it's the right time for everybody to contemplate this. Rob Perez, thanks so much. Uh, you're, you really, you guys are on the side of the angels. I hope this idea is a huge success. I hope people in your industry and other industries that can hire uh, folks in recovery are, um, are hearing about you. Uh, keep up the good work. Have a great holiday season and a, and, a, uh, and a happy new year with your restaurants. Thank you so much. And the rest of you, uh, take care. Listen for Recovery Radio next Saturday. Bye-bye. This program is a paid commercial announcement and in no way represents the views of WPHT or its management.